Hello, podcast listeners and Turn of the Screw fans. This is Jonathan Dean, dramaturg at Seattle Opera, here to discuss our recent production of Britain's Masterpiece with Nitara Dandapani, clinical social worker and youth mental health therapist with Child Haven. Child Haven is a social service organization here in King County. Nitara, tell us a little bit more about Child Haven and, and the mission of the organization. Sure. Um, so the organization is heavily trauma-informed and trauma-focused. Um, their sort of flagship program has been their therapeutic child care, working with kids who have been exposed to all sorts of different trauma and transitions. I am part of our new mental health program, so we're now offering services to kids from birth all the way up to age 12 and doing different kinds of community-based, school-based, home-based mental health services, working with kids who have been recently removed from home or who've been in foster placements for a while, or some who have had kind of different types of exposure to trauma. Is it sort of a referral by schools or does, I mean, how, do, how does a child end up connecting? To it's you? a big mix. Um, so we've gotten folks coming in through school counselors, through primary care doctors, we have a lot coming through social workers, so through um, Children's Administration, or now the Department of Children, Youth, and Families, and, and their programming. And then we have some kids who are coming through our existing Eclipse Therapeutic Trauma Daycare Program. So really just a lot of different channels, and some who refer themselves and hear about us and feel that their kids or families need that support. Let's start with attachment. In the turn of the screw, just to, to recap, Miles and Flora have lost their biological parents. Yeah. They've lost their unofficial second pair of parents, who are now ghosts, Quint and yeah. Miss Jessel. Their uncle's obviously avoiding them, and this governess shows up. <laughs> in our poster discussions of Turn of the Screw, the word attachment kept coming up. And yes. that was on a lot of people's minds. As a professional in this field, what is attachment? Yeah, it's such a a sibling of trauma, so it's great that you ask about it, but attachment really speaks to the quality of the relationship between a kid and their primary caregiver. So you're looking at how bonded a child is with their parents, or if they have a foster family, or if it's a kinship relative, a caring, consistent adult in their lives. And you see this a lot with the younger kiddos, especially that when that attachment is disrupted really early, that leaves such a lasting mark because it challenges your sense of what's safe in the world and what's consistent and what you're going to be able to rely on. So having transitions between multiple foster placements or having confusing messages from a parent who's abusive or who's withdrawn due to substance use, those are all different kinds of things that influence that level of attachment. Challenges to mm -hmm. that kind of healthy bond of attachment, which right. I guess presumably in the discipline of psychology, yeah. that's an important step in anybody's development and early Mm -hmm. I mean, it happens, you know, sort of pre-speech? Yeah, attachment starts really early with infants just recognizing who's going to respond. There's an example of an infant who was crying and crying for their parent, and when the parent doesn't respond, they learn that crying isn't the way to seek out that response and that protection. And so that's, you know, not your ideal <laughs> kind yeah. of what well, you want to see. Well, some parents do that on purpose right. to teach the kids that trying, crying right. is not going to get them what they want. But and so presumably it's, they're also there once the kid tries the, the exactly. preferred mechanism, yeah. the attachment can be restored. There's a fine line, exactly. We talk about the circle of security a lot, that as a kid grows older, they learn that they can go away and be a little bit further from the parent, and that when they come back, they'll still have that safe place to return to. So what about this particular story? I was definitely thinking about attachment while watching the opera, just from the perspective of 
in some ways, Miles and Flora seemed like they were really quick to attach to the governess, to a new person. Um, but in other ways, as more and more comes out, you're seeing that there's a lot that they're not quite ready to trust her with. Um, mm. And so it's. But they a, have yeah. a sort of veneer of charm, mm-hmm. don't they? Yeah. Uh, when they first meet, you were faked out a little bit. You saw <laughs> something that looked a little bit like secure attachment. I. I guess it looks more to me like also just the idea of stranger danger where sometimes kids boundaries come down a lot after especially after sexual abuse where the lines of what is acceptable adult behavior are perceived really differently um so i was kind of thinking wow they're just bonding so fast with this governess they seem like everything's great they don't know that much about her they've had so much disruption in their adults so i was surprised to see that they were quick to be with her and want to be to friends her. with her right right yeah. rather than more just kind of cautious and waiting to see if she proved her worth let's consider this whole situation in that early encounter yeah. from the perspective of the governess as well and i think for the purposes of this discussion we do have to set on the back burner the back of the table all of the many interpretations of the turn of the yes. screw that consider the governess the problem or she's the perpetrator or mm-hmm. she's crazy or whatever because that's not really um going to help us, I think, in this conversation, <laughs> which is about what's going on with the sure. kids. I think we could say probably the governess, she's not prepared yes. for yeah. what she's getting into. And, and you might actually question why she took the job in the first place. Yeah. When it, a lot of people have said that they hear the guy say, she wants to do everything, be responsible for everything. Not to worry him at all. No, not to write, but to be silent. And most people are like, you know, alert goes off. Yeah, it, it made me wonder a lot about her and what she's been through and why she was so motivated to take on a job with a complete stranger and so loyal to him from the get-go. Did she go through something in her life that's making her really need to be needed and need to be in this kind of savior function. And mm-hmm. What kind of preparation might have been more advisable for her to go into that feeling more prepared? I think you learn to listen a lot more than she did. She was so quick to just sort of push this whole, like, we have to protect the kids. The kids are being taken. And I, that was kind of a layer that maybe was a little beyond me, too, of just um, that conflict over who had possession of the kids, the ghosts or her. But yeah, I think there were moments at the end, especially where she started to seem like she was trying to get Miles to speak for himself. And I was reflecting with um, the friend that I attended with, too, of just like how little you hear the perspective of the kids in this, um, that it's so much about the kids, but so little of the kids' voices. And for me as a social worker, I'm so inclined to just want to know, like, can we just be quiet as adults for a minute and let the kids fill the space? You're right. She never does that. You know, it's also in some cases, it's a kid thing that they will try to protect adults and tell them what they feel adults want to hear so the more space you give them the more truth i think comes out sometimes one thing about the two kids and attachment going back to that that topic they're attached to each other <laughs> they have their own private world yeah and yeah she's not always going to be welcome there there's some sort of understanding and attachment between them of like we went through this we're not telling the new person about it. Kind of natural if you if kids yeah. have that kind of revolving door of primary adult caregivers. Mm-hmm. Who is it this week that yeah. the constant in their life is their brother and or sister? Yeah, that sibling is the one person who shares and who knows some of what you've been through without having to talk it through. So it would yeah. be pretty natural. When does that become something that's a, a limitation or, or an obstacle for the new attachment with a proper adult caregiver? 
Yeah, a healthy new attachment with a proper adult caregiver would be one that factors in the closeness of the sibling relationship that doesn't need to replace it. To me, one of the hardest moments in that whole opera to watch is at the end, uh, Mrs. Gross takes Flora away. Yeah. And there's this little moment where Flora looks up and Miles is up at the top and she knows I'm leaving him with that governess. And there's this terror. I'm never going to see, that's the main person in my life. I'm never going to see them again. I felt similarly. It was just a really dark moment that like you're taking away the one solid thing she has for whatever she's experienced that we don't fully know and understand. You're taking away the safe person. and mm. yeah. Safe and not the enabler of their evil ways. That's the logic of the adults in this story. We've got to get these kids away from each other because they're egging each other on to further right. misdeeds. Right. I saw a couple subtle moments of like Miles's behavior being what we call like, you know, sexualized child behavior where you've experienced something and you acted out on adults a little bit. Well, let's talk about the kids' bad behavior. <laughs> uh, actually, the director of this production added a couple little bits of was it naughty or mm-hmm. was it evil? Mm-hmm. When the governess first shows up, she immediately goes right downstage with Mrs. Gross and sings a little duet. And then upstage, Miles starts going through her little valise and he takes a handkerchief. That was the director's idea. You won't see that in every turn of the screw. Sure. Similarly, when the kids are playing war, <laughs> is that kind of normal childish misbehavior? Or is there does it step over the line? To me, it looks like normal child behavior, but it's always, I think you always look at it with the perspective of knowing what kids have been through. And when you see a kid who's been through war, reenacting war really violently, then you think about how heavily that's stuck in their system. When you see a kid who hasn't been through that, just acting out violently could mean something different. It could also still mean that they've been traumatized in some way. But Now you mentioned a child imitating sexualized behavior mm-hmm. as well. Yeah. You see that in when... Uh, Miles is with the governess. I saw, yeah, I think there's a moment where Miles just kind of pets her hair very tenderly and you just see her tense up in an instant and then that was it. And there were just little hints like that, it felt like. And the hint indicates he's either been watching movies that are rated (laughs) beyond he should or has had some untoward experience. Right, the assumption is usually that, like, where do you learn these behaviors as a kid? And either maybe from school, maybe from peers, but it's generally that kind of behavior seems like something that you would learn from being with an adult who acted inappropriately. We don't know why he got expelled. He's an injury to his friends. Right. What do we make of that, putting those pieces of the puzzle together? Yeah, aggressive behavior or being injurious towards your friends can be a coping skill when something is too painful to process yourself or think about. It can be easier to lash out on your peers. Um, So we do see, I think, a lot of just instead of turning inwards and questioning, what did I go through? Let me do the heavy lifting of unpacking this painful trauma. Um, It's easier to just push against someone who comes into your space. Or if you haven't necessarily learned the ways to hold and process those emotions, then it's also just easier to lash out. So it's It's kind of like the sexualized behavior thing. The victim becomes the perpetrator. Like many people, you interpret the story as there must have been some sexual impropriety. Yeah, that was my, and I was trying to just stay very neutral, but I I feel like there were several suggestions along the way that made me think that had happened between Quint and and, uh, Miles, for sure. Mm. Mrs. Gross, in her narrative, tells the governess, I did not like his ways. He was free with people. Yeah. He took liberties. Yeah. So that must be something that you, as a person professionally who deals with kids, Mm -hmm. you either get extra training in recognizing the signs or the patterns. I mean, obviously, it's it's probably a felony. Yeah, when it's proven or when it's considered to be founded, the allegations, then it's you can become a, yeah, I think registered as a sex offender. But 
there are unfortunately um, several cases of abuse and neglect that are not given that status. So families are continued to be exposed to each other, even when that has been perpetrated. That can continue? If there is enough concern, then a kid would be removed usually, but visitation can continue. So kids can be kind of continually exposed to adults who might have done something to them in the past. If you've been through child sexual abuse and you start to perpetrate sexual abuse, there's still a huge amount of guilt and darkness that you're carrying. It's just that the way that you're coping is by kind of recreating that cycle. So it's it's such a painful thing, I think, to watch someone who's been through it then commit it because they know that it's causing pain to someone else because it caused pain to them. But This is where we end right before intermission. It all comes very quiet, and the little boy looks at the governess and says, you see, I am bad. Mm-hmm. I am bad, aren't I? Right. I love watching the audience watch that moment of the opera because every single night they're all like, <laughs> just kind of speechless. And it's one of those, you know, sometimes the curtain, the blackout and the curtain comes yeah. down and the audience leaps to their feet applauding, but not in <laughs> turn of the screw. It's yeah, it, it definitely, when he started, I think, singing the very eerie kind of song about being mellow and being bad and everything, um, it resonated a lot. It made so much sense. And it makes me think of, you know, the messages that maybe he was getting from Peter Quint was the message, you need to keep this quiet. You can't tell anyone what we're doing is bad. You're, you know, there's kind of that that extra turn of emotional abuse that happens in those situations where a kid can start to believe, okay, like I am bad because I'm doing this and I'm keeping it a secret. In her responses, what a funny song. Did I teach you that? Right. What would be the proper response, like if you were, if you knew what you were doing? Yeah, there were so many follow-up questions to that that I think he responds, um, he just found it. So where did you find it? How did you find it? Um, what does it mean to you? How do you feel about singing that song? Does it apply to you? I mean, I would have not hopefully asked all those questions in succession, but there's a lot more that she could have plowed. Unpack. Yeah, exactly. And get him, and as you say, get him talking about it and then listen, no yeah. matter what he says. Right, right. And let it be okay that if he says something that doesn't make sense to her, like this clearly means something to him. It has some personal resonance. And it made a lot of sense to me that he that would feel that way. That kind of stain or stigma gets associated with it. If you're younger, it's hard to know that like you shouldn't be ashamed because someone did this to you, but you're just told that this is not something that you talk about. Well, more generally, I imagine it's probably in all parenting you need a kind of a monitor of whether your kid, how, how your kid thinks they are doing, how they evaluate themselves on a kind of a moral scale. Yeah. The, a kid is probably going to go around judging themselves either I'm wonderful and everybody loves me or I suck and I'm terrible at everything and you know everything I do turns into a disaster. Yeah, and that I think I mean goes right back to attachment, that if you're in a really healthy attached relationship with your caregivers, um, it's easier to know when you're good and feel reinforcement and feel confident and when that's not the case it's easy to believe well this parent didn't show up because I was bad or I'm not good enough and that's why I'm not loved and just those elements of parents um, you know parental mental illness parental substance use parents not being as present as they could be are harder to understand and kids think that it's about them rather than their parents struggles Hmm. Uh, there's a lot going on in the adult world here Mm -hmm. particularly I think in the case of the turn of the screw we need to be pretty clear as people living in 2018 that this is taking place in an extremely patriarchal society super strict gender roles Mm -hmm. are the kids aware of the tensions among the various adults i wonder i mean some of flora's behavior she's very capable she's equally skilled as miles and some of her rebellion that looks like you know kind of bad child behavior with air quotes (laughs) um, (laughs) could be 
just a rebellion towards wanting her own recognition and wanting her own ability and power. And so, um, yeah. There's that great scene where, sh where Miles is getting the Latin lesson yeah. and Flora is sort of chirping. She's just yes. bouncing off the walls. You must have recognized that. Yeah. Big, <laughs> yeah. I think that level of like, it could be just, you know, I want to play. It could also be, yeah. Pay attention every, to me. Right. Exactly. Every behavior has a purpose and a function. And if it disrupts from him being the only one who gets opportunity, or if it raises awareness of Flora as somebody to be paid attention to, then mm -hmm. yeah. But there's tension, for instance, between the uncle and the governess. Mm -hmm. If you've got a situation, say, where mom and dad are fighting over the kid, mm -hmm. does the kid have awareness of it, that that's what's going on? That's a good question. It varies. A lot of domestic violence cases, there's kids may have awareness that the fighting is not related to them, but I think a lot of times it becomes really hard for the kid because the kid strongly identifies with one parent or the other. So if they identify with the parent that's perpetrating the domestic violence or abuse, then um, they're in a position where it's very hard to understand why the other parent needs protection or there's a lot of resentment when one parent is removed. And if they identify with the parent who was hurt, then there's a different kind of pain and victimization. And there's also just a lot of guilt and resentment towards parents for not protecting themselves or the child from the situation. So I think to answer your question, it's possible that they're aware of it. It seemed to me more like Miles, at least, was really conscious of protecting his uncle from the information and whether that's kind of caring protection or a nervous protection that he didn't want his uncle he to know what happened. He doesn't want the uncle to be here at all. Because right. when the uncle's gone, of course, Miles is in charge. Right. Just again, according to that kind of British patriarchal system. Yeah. There's a lot of manipulation in the story. When do you cross the line between what's ordinary kind of relationship negotiation to something that's more sinister? Oh, that's interesting. I think of every behavior as having a purpose and what we call manipulative serve some end for the kids um, and it could be an end that's about self-protection it could be an end that's about kind of avoiding having to deal with painful feelings and confront those things so from the outside it can look really manipulative that you're steering an adult away or that you're steering them towards a particular discovery but yeah from the inside from the emotional turmoil I think there's something else going on if you haven't learned another way to communicate about this or with what they've gone through being so difficult that throughout the entire course of the opera, we don't hear exactly what it is. If you don't have that ability to describe it, then you'll manipulate the situation to achieve mm -hmm. your end. Well, I see something, for instance, Flora gets Mrs. Gross to fall asleep. Go to sleep, go to sleep, go to sleep. Almost, she's casting a spell on her. It's very, yeah. very strange. It was very eerie. <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> that moment. But again, it felt like she wanted to shield her or she didn't want her to see what was coming next. And so she needed to kind of remove Mrs. Gross from the situation so that she Just could go Just the way off. Miles tries to keep the uncle out of it. Exactly. The governess, as you point out, she needs to work on her listening skills. She's remarkably quick to jump to assumptions, uh, to make judgments. <laughs> Let's catalog some of her various mistakes, shall we? <laughs> <laughs> sure. With Flora, when they go on, I guess they're picnic by the lake, and they both see Miss Jessel, and her reaction is just like she freaks out and panics and tells Mrs. Gross that Flora saw the ghost too and isn't telling her. And 
not once does she go and check in with Flora about what this means to her <laughs> that she saw a ghost. And did she really see the ghost too? Does she know exactly what they both saw? It's just, there's no conversation. It's just like an immediate assumption that she knows what happened and she doesn't trust Flora anymore because Flora's been given over to this ghost. Mm-hmm. So the, again, it's that failure to listen, or, or in this case, even to kind of respect that you're dealing with another human being. Yeah, or just to ask. I mean, there's so many questions that are never asked of the kids directly, and they may not know the answers. But we'll go yeah. back to that letter from Miles's school. Yeah, I mean, that to me is one of the again one of the moments that just makes me shivers. The Miss Gross says, well, "What are you going to do about this letter?" What shall you do then? I shall do nothing. And then Mrs. Gross says, that's great. I'm going to stand by you. And I just feel like, okay, we're, yeah. this is hopeless right. at this point. <laughs> she should say, so I don't know what she should say, but she shouldn't go into denial, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think, I mean, behavior like play is a language for kids at that age. And so if you're completely ignoring it and he's trying to convey something through his behavior at school, there's something that's going, either school is uncomfortable for him, his peers did something triggering, he doesn't want to be there. There's some reason that you don't get at if you do nothing in that situation. Avoiding interaction on the child with a difficult subject. Yeah. Maybe that's something that it's pretty typical. Most caregivers you know, do pick and choose which interactions we're willing to have. Yeah, I think it's easier to be kind of the favorite and be loved as she is than to challenge sometimes. Mm-hmm. Well, let me ask a different question then. So say they did have these this earlier pair of surrogate parents yeah. who were terrible people. And we don't know the details, but it was not good, gotcha. whatever happened there. How does a, a child freed from that kind of a thing get... Uh, things going in the right direction with a new caregiver, a foster parent or whatever. That must be a process. Yeah, it's a huge process. And I think it's really easy to discount the early childhood, early family experiences and say like, well, you know, those parents were so horrible and they perpetrated so much violence on these kids that the kids are never going to want to have any understanding or connection to them. And at least in my experience, I think that's really not the case like you can have a child be removed and they can be adopted and they can be fully integrated into a wonderful supportive family but that first family that they came from is still going to be a part of their minds and their life stories and so I think just being in an environment where it's okay to miss where you came from and it's okay to wonder and have questions and our I mean this is sort of going to be a rant about (laughs) about a different part of the system than you're asking about but our current sort of legal system in my view does not do a great job of letting kids have access to their stories and to know who they were and where they came from it's sort of this secret that's between the foster family and the social worker and the mental health provider and kids who this is all circling around don't get to know what's so essential for their own sort of Hmm. identity development but it sounds a little bit like what happens in this story which is mm-hmm. you know the governess is mysteriously gone one day yeah. and then quint disappears yeah. they're gone suddenly and we're never going to talk about them again right <laughs> that yeah of course there would still be a presence in their lives yeah mrs gross to me seems like she does a really great job of that whole like we're not talking about it let's she is really reluctant to even open up to the governess about some of these stories and The governess goes back and forth. There's times where I I think I felt some allegiance with her, like, yes, you're standing up for these kids, and other times where it just went way into this kind of twisted savior complex thing. Is that a real thing? 
the savior the complex? savior complex for I, a social worker so. or for a person in that governess's role of primary caregiver for kids who are not biologically mine yeah especially at least what we learn about kind of where the profession came from um there's a lot of history of social workers sort of starting out with this perspective of going in and saving or rectifying um and we hope that that's been changed and that we're more of advocates than we are saviors but it's definitely, I think it's a really sticky, fine line that people in those professions can walk of... The advocate as opposed to the messiah, savior. Exactly, thing. exactly. And that's where that difference comes in for the governess, too, of like, as an advocate, I think she would have acted really differently than she did as the savior. And Well, the advocate probably would have gone back to the school and said, tell me more. What does this mean? Right. An injury to his friends. Right. There would be no hesitation, like causing worry to the uncle the director by putting him in the little army fatigues at the beginning the idea is he's down in churchill's war rooms in the bunker he's trying to fight the nazis gotcha. don't bug him you know that he has mm-hmm. he has you know more things to worry about than domestic right. drama of mm-hmm. that's very affluent family right but it's a great commentary too because it it sort of reinforces the way that i think we do think about it as a society that like there's better things to deal with than psychological trauma like everyone has more important things and yet psychological trauma really impairs your ability to live in the world and it's probably easier as a family member to do your responsibility by family members who have injuries you know sicknesses whatever in some ways yeah. than the ones who are dealing with mental health issues yeah the you don't necessarily know what you could do yeah no it's a much more of kind of what you don't talk about as you were saying before too that it's you know there's not much shame or stigma around like someone having a broken leg and going home to tend to them but someone who needs to be you know attended to for a mental health concern and um, in that era as i understand it would be taken to institutionalization and that would be the solution just much more marginalized right. I and mean, we don't know what happens to flora Right. At the end, I'm taking her away, and she's sort of almost catatonic. Let's talk about what happens to Miles. Yeah. And it's it's mom and dad are using the kid as the battleground. Right. Although in this case, it's, you know, the messianic savior, self-appointed savior, versus the devil, who she thinks is having this tug of war with her. Yeah, it was definitely so creepy to just see him sort of kind of upstanding, floating by at the end as though he's come (laughs) out of his body. And you don't know, has he he fainted? Has he completely passed out? Is this like a dissociation? Because that happens with trauma. Um, But it was just like such a beautiful physical representation of not being able to tolerate what was being done to him. And I think about it, too, in trauma, we have kind of a treatment of exposure where you sort of gently expose someone to the thing that's difficult for them to face. Um, And I kept thinking to myself at the end that the governess was just doing a really bad job of exposure and just pushing him to say the name of his abuser in such a way where she seemed to think once he did it, it was magic and he was fixed and he was saved and Peter Quint's ghost temporarily disappeared. But the ramifications for Miles were really heavy, it seemed like. And Mm -hmm. so it's not necessarily this quick fix where you just state what happened and you're done and you're through and you'll never have post-traumatic stress again. This story was written a really long time ago. I mean, the story is actually pre-Freud. Yeah, psychology has has changed (laughs) Changed a lot (laughs) during that. But there probably was a period where the goal was to name Mm -hmm. your issue Mm -hmm. that was considered enough you know, in terms yeah. of the, the job of psychoanalysis or yeah. of therapy. Yeah, and as a profession, we go back and forth a lot about just how labeling can be freeing for some people who have lived with mental health for a long time, and naming your diagnosis can be really empowering. And other times, it's a way to just write someone off and say, like, oh, okay, we're going to slap this diagnostic label onto you, and that's who you are, and that's all you are, and that's how you'll be treated. And 
it, it just separates the humanity from the symptoms, I think, mm. in some ways. There were a handful of people who, who came up with this was that this is how you exercise a demon mm-hmm. is you somehow get its name and that gives you control. Like that Beetlejuice kind of, of the feeling. demon. Yeah. 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 Or Rumpelstiltskin. Or, or, yeah. <laughs> there's, it seems to me there's the psychology for real world thing. <laughs> and then there's the one that proliferates. It only exists in terms of literature. Yeah. But even that perspective that you're saying raises super interesting questions. Cause it's just, I think that has lived in a lot of the history of mental health that it's about being possessed and it's about there's a demon inside you and something is making you act this way and and it just again it separates out allowing people to struggle and allowing people to have painful responses to difficult situations instead of saying like you know we need to remove the demon and we need to restore some purity to you and that too with um child sexual abuse I think is a big issue of just feeling so changed and feeling so violated and that conflict of like what was good in you is turned bad because of what's happened to you and so yeah I think it just the governess to me just added to all that problematic sort of mindset by taking on that exorcism role of like I'm just going to take away Peter Quint and you will be saved you'll be clean again and even if you take away the memory of what Quint did to him it's still going to be a part of him it's still shaped trauma rewires your brain you know it affects a lot about you um so to pretend that you can just erase it I think is is really missing a lot mm-hmm. if there was a child haven approved person <laughs> Who is you know working in this household? Sure. What, well, actually, it's funny. She has this line even earlier when they're they're in his bedroom. He's got a, they're both sitting on the bed. He's got a candle, and she says, "If you knew how I want to help you, how I want you to help me." <laughs> yeah, I did and the same thing. I winced <laughs> when that happened. Like, wow, that's really not. I mean, even yeah. if that's what she's thinking, that's probably not the the card to lead with. As she's trying to build a relationship with this kid. Yeah, and it's, I think the child even approved philosophy. (laughs) It's not the kid's responsibility and allowing the providers and allowing adults to come in and learn and work with the kid about, you know, what communicates well, what helps them express what's going on rather than just placing this burden on the child that I'm here to help you and you need to help me help you, which is an extra stress for someone who's already been through something difficult to feel like you're now responsible for your mental health provider or your governess's success right yeah. <laughs> exactly. but it's interesting how much she's because she's always i have failed mm-hmm. i am useless i mean yeah she's she got a lot of that. baggage <laughs> <laughs> again that's something that she should probably do off-site you know it doesn't yeah. it doesn't help for the the kids to know how little self-confidence she has yeah i would have loved to have gotten her some counseling support as well because i think she really could have used an outlet to decide why why is that a failure and i mean there's so much research just saying that having a caring adult um, in a child's life can make a big difference of sort of exposure to someone at school, anything really. And so just starting from that point that being there and caring and being a presence for them is a success, um, I think would have been helpful for her self-esteem. And that could be something she could work on. <laughs> Natara, thanks so much for joining me here to uh, reflect on this opera. Yeah. Glad to have your thoughts. Yeah. Thank you for letting me be a part of it. This is your five minute call. Just wrapped up. Perfect timing. Yeah. <laughs>